Hey, everybody. Just real quick before we get started, we wanted to do a shout out for our new Patreon members. Woo! Thank you to Raymond and also to Brandon for joining our Patreon. Welcome. Thank you so much for supporting our shows and look forward to that sweet, sweet content you're getting because both of them joined at the $2 and up level. Yes! Uh, Yeah, we're in the middle of our Bond series. We're going to have not one, but two extra Bond films on the Patreon within this cycle. We don't have an exact date because life is crazy, but they're coming. Uh, It's going to be Never Say Never Again and Casino Royale. 1967. Yes. One with Peter Sellers. So, all right, let's get into it. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What? The podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we watched The Spy Who Loved Me. James Bond investigates the hijacking of British and Russian submarines carrying nuclear warheads with the help of a KGB agent whose lover he killed. (gasps) So the spy means many different things. Whoa! Layers! There are layers! You know, that's actually kind of a good segue into a general thoughts about this movie is that there are layers. There are layers. And this is by far way better than the previous two films we've watched in this series. For sure. And I would hold this up as maybe not in the upper echelon of Bond movies, but definitely in the second tier. It's a legit good movie. This is definitely one... Okay, this is the horniest we've seen Bond. Woo! By a lot. Is he ever? Like, we just kept saying horny Bond, horny Bond the whole time we're watching this. Bond, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Though, can I give him some credit? Yeah. Not creepy horny. Not creepy horny, just Just down. horny. He's just super DTF. Uh Uh-huh. He is super DTF at all times. Roger Moore, he can get it. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is definitely the film they point to and like, we need sexy, like, womanizer bond. Let's go watch this film. This one, this is what we want. We need some of this flavor in our film. Go do that. It's still silly. Mm-hmm. And yet they've added a layer of complexity with Anya that really lends an interesting angle to the movie. She has so much agency as a character. She's not a victim in any of this. No. Uh, other than the fact that the spy whom she loved was killed by Bond. Mm-hmm. And she wants vengeance for that. Other than that, she is on board to do her job as a spy. Sometimes being a lady spy means getting down. A little bit. A little bit. So that's been a breath of fresh air to this franchise as a whole. The budget for this film was $13.5 million. That makes it the most expensive Bond to date. It made forty six million eight hundred thousand in U.S. and worldwide, it made one hundred eighty five million four hundred thousand dollars. So this is after the departure of Harry Saltzman. Okay, yeah, this is our plain broccoli <laughs> with U.A., which we haven't decided what we're going to put on there yet. It'll come to me. It just hasn't happened yet. But listeners, if you have a suggestion, we accept it. Unadulterated broccoli. No. <laughs> That's just wrong. Despite the relative, air quotes, failure of Man with the Golden Gun, Broccoli wanted to deeply reinvest in the franchise. Okay. 
And this was kind of a long, drawn-out process for a few different reasons that come up in different parts of the trivia. But one of the things that's been mentioned is that the relative box office problems of Man with the Golden Gun and all the partnership struggles were part of what delayed this movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, we went back to back to back. We might have a two-year gap, but that'd be it. it Yeah, it was like more of an 18-month separation. As soon as one's done, they're moving on to the next film. Yeah. And this is three years in between. Mm. Despite that, Broccoli names this among his top three favorite Bond films. Hmm. From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and this. And if you're going to talk about classic stalwarts of the franchise, I can buy that. Okay, so from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though, okay, I... You have your soft spot with Majesty's Secret Service. I understand Albert Broccoli and the tortured process of that for him. No, no, I totally get that. But I'm like, oh, yeah, those are so classic and so... Like, each one encompasses a different facet of bond in such a great way that of course those are going to be the ones you point to to be like that i want that flavor here i don't think there's any argument that these three movies are the templates by which you can judge other bond films right like Hmm. from russia with love is sort of the gritty thriller style goldfinger with the mad genius and then you've got this which is a template of slightly sillier Slightly more romantic, but still tense and dark Bond. Yes. And the spectacle of Bond. This is probably the biggest, most epic action Bond we've seen thus far. Hmm. Okay. I mean, this reminds me a lot of the Pierce Brosnan movies. It does, because it also has this super nuts villain. Like, this villain is on par with Goldfinger villain. Yeah, but even more so. No, true, but they're very comparable. Oh, yeah. They're both playing in the same league. All right, Stromberg, you've made your point. How much do you want? How much? Whatever do you mean, Mr. Bond? The price for not firing those nuclear missiles. You're deluded, Mr. Bond. I'm not interested in extortion. I intend to change the face of history. By destroying the world? By creating a world. Our writers for this film mm-hmm. are Christopher Wood and Richard Maybaum. Okay, Maybaum. Wood will return for Moonraker. Okay. Ian Fleming actually hated this novel so much that he refused to let it be published in paperback during his lifetime. Hmm. And it was only reissued after this movie got released. Yeah, that sounds about right. You gotta you gotta print the book that goes with the movie. I know. It's just standard practice. But this also diverges almost completely from the novel. It's kind of a name only. It's considered the first Bond movie to pretty much be totally original. And there are lots of the newer movies that use the name only Mm -hmm. and then completely reconfigure the entire storyline. I'm comfortable with that. I think that's what they did with Daniel Craig, especially with Casino Royale. Oh, yeah, because it was like, we have to completely like reset this. And I love Casino Royale. And judging by the teasers we've seen and the little drips and drabs of synopsis information, I'm still holding out the theory that the next movie we're about to do is basically Dr. No. Yeah, but the synopsis that has now been dropped on IMDb for Bond 25 looks 
very much like an updated version of Dr. No. And I'm cool with that because the villain's going to be Rami Malek and that's going to be fun for me. This is also the first Bond film to make significant meta references to the other films. We did get it with On Her Majesty's Secret Service in little joke forms. Yes. But this very specifically weaves that into the story and the fabric of the film. Correct. The writing on this one was actually pretty good. Did Roger Moore do a lot of ad-libbing? No. Okay, because he gets so many little jabs and snide comments that it just feels like that's him on set doing his thing. And either way, I'm fine with it because they're quite good. Well, this script is, uh, it has a few more hands attached to it. Oh, were there some uncredited rewrites? A lot. Okay. First of all, Tom Mankiewicz, we've had our problems with, Mm -hmm. uh, had uncredited role in this. Specifically, he wrote the scene where Bond and Anya meet in the bar. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. Well, let's say au revoir. I have the oddest feeling we'll be meeting again sometime. Okay. Which is one of the center focus points of the movie. They establish Bond's past in that scene. Mm-hmm. They talk about a lot of his past stuff with the Connery films, and they're mentioning a lot of that. Oh, in that yeah. Scene. They mention married once. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, they went there. Because as far as I can tell, because it's been a while since I watched all the Daniel Craig films, I don't see them calling back in that franchise to the rest of the franchise in the way that this one did. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. we're not pretending those don't exist. I like it. Because also James Bond is a time lord. (laughs) Also uncredited on this movie, Guy Hamilton did Uh some rewrites. Okay. Sir Anthony Burgess. Oh. Of Clockwork Orange fame. Oh. And a very young, inexperienced, but up and coming writer slash eventual director by the name of John Landis? Hmm. No name. Gentleman who went nowhere and did nothing. Yeah, no. No. <laughs> it's fun to shit on famous people. <laughs> In short, there were 12 different writers and 15 different drafts of the story altogether. You know what? They pulled it together pretty good. Well, I think after the relative issues, and especially with Mankiewicz walking off of Man with a Golden Gun, Mm -hmm. it sounds like they wanted to make damn sure whatever movie they were making with as much money as they wanted to put into it, Mm -hmm. it better be good. That sounds so much like we're going to course correct this this franchise. This is going to be successful if it's the last thing we do. Because it, it may very well be. Well, and not only that, but we want to make the biggest Bond film we've ever made. Mm-hmm. But we also know if the writing's not there, no one's going to care with all the stuff we throw at them. <gasps> That's true of all movies. <laughs> of all things in, in, a dig- in, in a visual medium. One of the early drafts actually had Blofeld returning okay. from Diamonds Are Forever. I mean, that movie's garbage, but okay. International terrorists were going to try to kill off Blofeld to start a new world order. Okay. But Albert Broccoli rejected the premise as a little too dark and a little too close to home because the early 70s were a hotbed for international terrorism. And finally, one of the other reasons this got delayed was the creator of Thunderbirds, Jerry Anderson, threatened legal action, stating that he wrote a story very close to the proposal of this movie. The producers ultimately thought, well, it's not very close, but 
they did change a few little elements here or there to make sure it didn't stray too close to that idea. We couldn't have another Thunderball situation, which we will cover later. All right. Our director is Lewis Gilbert, previously directing You Only Live Twice. <gasps> I love that one. Oh, wait, no, that's not the one I like. That's the song I love. That's why I keep confusing it. I love Thunderball, but I love the song You Only Live Twice. <laughs> I keep singing it in my damn head. And that's why I keep thinking I like that movie, but that's the super racist one. So I don't like it. Well, it's a bit of a toss up now between that and Live and Let Die. Lewis Gilbert will return for Moonraker. Okay. And he felt the series needed to move away from Connery's toughness and get back to the idea of the book's portrayal of Bond. Mm, okay. Quote, very English, very smooth, good sense of humor. Definitely get more of that. The sense of humor for sure, which Roger Moore plays so well. That's the thing that they leaned in with him. Yes. He always had the charm. Yes. And he always had the very smooth nature to him that they had built into the last two movies. But they had not leaned into his ability to play the humor. You instantly get that he is an English gentleman. Mm-hmm. But he's got a wicked tongue. Oh, yes. And I love that. Because that's, I mean, that's just, that makes Diana all melty. It makes things more entertaining, even though it's a little silly and campy. Mm -hmm. I think what it really does is those moments, like the moment when Anya confronts him mm -hmm. about the murder, it makes those moments land so much better. Because all this time, we've had this sort of freewheeling, mm -hmm. back and forth game of cat and mouse between them. And then all of a sudden, she drops this bomb on him. And you see all of that seriousness come in. We have some who could have been better. Ooh, for director? Yes. Okay. First of all, Guy Hamilton. No. 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 So he actually <laughs> left this to go direct Superman. Huh. And then wound up dropping out of that project as well. And then... The producers found a director out there who was relatively up and coming and they thought might be really interesting to bring in, but they were really concerned about it. And it just didn't work out because he was in a really awful lengthy production run on a little indie movie called Jaws. Oh, that's um, Steven something? Steven Spielberg Man, was considered. That, that know-nothing dude, he went nowhere. He was considered to direct this movie. Huh. You know, he should not be allowed to do a Bond film. I don't feel like Steven Spielberg gets subtlety. And you have to play Bond with a certain amount of subtlety. Now, I would argue that's not true, especially early in his career, because Jaws is incredibly subtle. So is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But those were also out of necessity. Spoiler alert, we have Spielberg on our list of directors with films that we need to cover because I have only seen the TV version of Jaws and it scared the crap out of me, so no. And also, I've never seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So eventually we're going to cover those. Yes. They're on the list. Oh my, there's so much to cover with Steven. If they caught him this early and they were restricting his budget, he would have figured it out. I think he could have. I He's a scrappy dude. I don't deny that. But for where they are in the franchise, he would have been a bad choice. Yeah. That's, that's my argument against Spielberg. Here's what I'm going to say, though. Albert Broccoli has an eye for talent because holy crap, Truth. he picked this guy out of nowhere? True that. <laughs> True that. 
All right, on to our cast. Sir Roger Moore as James Bond. He can still get it. So horny. He Good is the grief. horniest I've seen a Bond. <laughs> like, literally a woman walks in the room and he is watching her going, how can I get you to have sex with me right now? Every single woman. And then he does. <laughs> Just about. I mean, it, feel, it feels that way because it's so horny (laughs) and we're here for the horny it's just so funny because of how blatant it is oh my gosh uh more actually made the decision to sit at the chair during the face-off with stromberg with the gun under the table but the special effects team had only reinforced the back of the chair as part of the original plan so if he didn't move out of the way in time he was going to get hit by that explosion great yay safety standards he still made the leap in time, so. Well, that's good. The thing was, that was never the stunt plan, and he made that decision yeah, as the uh, cameras rolled. Okay. Well, then that is on you, actor. You put yourself in trouble. Yep. That OSHA guy is going to find him. <laughs> <laughs> the only other specific note for him was he contracted shingles while shooting in Scotland. Oh, that's unfortunate. Next up, Barbara Bach as Agent Triple X slash Major Anya Amasova. Mm-hmm. That's your note? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's all right. She's, she's very stiff compared to him. She's just very stiff. Yeah, she's an American playing Russian. And I'm like, why did you not just get Nikki Vander's to do her voice? Oh, geez. That's yeah. what you should have done. Yeah, she's just, like, she's fine. She's beautiful. I know. But, it is what it is. But yeah, she's just too stiff. Before this, eh, nothing really. This was kind of the bigger deal for her. After this, she did Force 10 from Navarone, mm-hmm. The Humanoid, Up the Academy, Caveman, and Give My Regards to Broad Street, the weird-ass Paul McCartney film vehicle. Weird. But that makes sense because on the set of Caveman, she met her third and current husband, Ringo Starr. Aww. She was cast four days before principal photography. Shit. She auditioned just for a role in the movie. She didn't care what she got and had no idea she was being considered for the lead. Well, that's awesome. And during the tunnel flooding, the panic was very real because, according to Ken Adams, she had no idea that much water was going to be blasting at them. That's cool. (laughs) I mean, scary, but also cool. Who could have been better? First of all, Catherine Deneuve, who's been mentioned at least once before, according to Mankiewicz, she would have actually cut her rate from $400,000 a film to $250,000 a film, but Broccoli refused to pay anybody above $80,000 for that role. What? Says some sexist bullshit. That's why he wanted to get an unknown. unknown actresses. He didn't want to have to pay them. Because that role is as equally important and big as Bond. And okay, he's title character. He's a driving force. Whoever plays Bond should be getting paid the most. Fair. But if Roger Moore is getting 500K for this movie, 400K for number two on the call sheet is fair for this franchise. That's bullshit. As we may have learned, Albert Broccoli is a cheap motherfucker. (laughs) Some cheap ass broccoli. (laughs) He is cheap broccoli. Frozen broccoli. Hey, frozen broccoli can be pretty good. But he's expired canned broccoli. Rotten broccoli. Rotten broccoli. (laughs) We're so bitter. (laughs) And there is one who could have been better that I cannot tell you. 
Until later. Rude. So we'll move on. Rude. We have Kurd Jurgens as Karl Stromberg, famous German character actor. Before this, he was in And God Created Woman, The Enemy Below, The Longest Day, Lord Jim, The Battle of Britain, The Mephisto Waltz, and Nicholas and Alexandra. After this, uh, nothing we would know. Okay. I'm sure he was still a character actor, and he did so many German films. Okay. Like, so many. All of them. That I'm just, I don't know any of them, unfortunately. Okay. He is the first original villain in the entire franchise. Oh, okay. He he definitely is a composite of Blofeld and Goldfinger and some of these other villains that we've seen. He's an amalgamation. But I do appreciate the fact that they wrote him as the very stern psychopath. Uh, Goldfinger's sort of this charming, egotistical dude. He's very stern and matter of fact. Yeah. And it's just, it's almost a little Thanos-esque. This is my plan. That's it. Fuck off. <laughs> I'm going to blow up all the major cities in the world, and then I'm taking over. And I live in a sea pod with butt chairs. And if you cross me, you get eaten by sharks. It's very simple, really. It's, it's why are there questions? Do what I tell you to do. And you don't die. The end. And it really, really works, especially for the fact that we've got this super suave uh-huh. sense of humor bond to have a villain who's just pure matter-of-fact mm-hmm. evil makes a whole lot of sense. Well, it's great. And I also love a villain, depends on the situation, but I can really enjoy a villain who doesn't try to explain or persuade their view. And this is just what it is. Too bad. Bye. Fun fact. Ooh, fun facts. Kurt Jurgens has webbed hands. Ooh. But you could only really notice it if you were seeing it on a large screen. Oh, yeah. And who could have been better? James Mason. Mm-hmm. British character actor James Mason. James Mason. Stromberg was very inspired by his villain role in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as mm-hmm. Captain Nemo. He was in the running in consideration. I think probably the rate was a little too high for him. I mean, he was a big deal British I mean, actor. He would have done fine in the role. He might have been a little focus pulling. Richard Keel as Jaws. Oh, geez. Before this, he was in a lot of things. Surprisingly, I was not aware of how long his career was. Mm -hmm. He was in House of the Damned, The Nutty Professor, Lassie's Great Adventure, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, The Longest Yard, Flash and the Firecat, and Silver Streak. Mm -hmm. After this, Force 10 from Navarone with Barbara Bach. Okay. The Humanoid with Barbara Bach. Moonraker, Cannonball Run 2, Pale Rider, Happy Gilmore, Inspector Gadget from 1999, and he is a voice in Tangled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one of the bar guys. Because I had to look him up when I saw him. I was like, I know this dude. Why do I know him? He recently passed away. Yes. Um, and I know that he was actually offered the role of Chewbacca, and he turned it down. I'm and glad that we got Peter Mayhew. Oh, yeah. Oh, Peter Mayhew's great. This guy would have done great, too. Oh, of course. He's lovely. Jaws as a character is stupid. A guy with a metal, powerful mouth. That's stupid. The stupid part is sort of the vampiric idea of him. Mm-hmm. What makes him compelling, and I think has made him iconic in a lot of ways, is the indestructibleness. Oh, I love that. 
But I wish the whole thing with his mouth had been more incidental because I love the idea that he's this big guy. I mean, he's almost a giant. Right. He's huge. And he's very powerful and indestructible. And then it becomes he's so indestructible, even his teeth have the power to bend steel and bite into it. Like, he's fine. That needed to be used very sparingly instead of this giant mouthpiece that every time we see him, he's got his mouth open so you can see that. It it should have been... A very delicate thing. It's a very 1960s move. It's very campy. To put in a late 70s movie. It's just campy for the tone. And that was honestly the thing that bugged me the most. It's like the villain himself is fine, but this gimmick is unnecessary. It's really interesting. Christopher Wood in the novelization of this mm-hmm. actually wrote this really long backstory for Jaws. Okay. It's really incredibly compelling. I think it would really work if they brought him back later on in this current series. It basically came down to he was from an Eastern Bloc country mm-hmm. and a soldier brutalized him and knocked out all his teeth yeah. and beat him nearly to death. Mm-hmm. And they had to replace a lot of stuff with metal parts. So yeah. that's why he has the metal jaw and why he's known as Jaws. I was like, okay, he has this really compelling dark backstory, and you're right. You're undercutting that by selling him as the sort of tall clown guy. Yeah, who doesn't talk, and I would be fine with him not talking if he kept his mouth shut. Yeah. He could only keep the metal girl in his mouth for about 30 seconds at a time because it caused extreme pain and discomfort, which made the comic expressions very difficult to reconcile on screen because he was supposed to be grinning the entire time, and it hurt. Mm-hmm. The chain that he bit through was made of licorice. Cool. And those teeth are on display at the DC Spy Museum. Oh, fine. Uh, Jaws was supposed to die at the end of the film, and Bond was going to use a magnet to drop him into the super tanker's furnace. Cool, cool, cool. They rehearsed the whole ending. They had it prepared. And Broccoli, the man with the magic foresight, I have to give him credit, saw and went, they're going to love him. They're really going to love him. And he went, nah, he's too good for the franchise. We have to keep him around. Okay, so yeah, we keep a little more ambiguous. And during the previews, when Jaws was swimming away from the wreckage, audiences were cheering in the theater. (laughs) That's awesome. Who could have been better? No one. Jack O'Halloran, who played Non in Superman and Superman 2. Me. Will Sampson, who you may better know as Chief Bromden in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I've never seen that movie. (sighs) And David Prowse, who would go on to play Darth Vader, who we've talked about. Mm -hmm. Too beefy. Now, Richard Keel has the face. Richard Keel is cool. It's that Michael Shannon face that he has. It is a Michael. That's what it is. It's the Michael Shannon face. Mm -hmm. Damn it. Just much, much bigger. And I don't mean that as an insult at all in any way, shape, or form. He's just got that wild eye look. And finally, for our main cast, Caroline Monroe playing Naomi. You may not remember her right away, but she's the one who comes in on the boat in the skimpy bathing suit to Oh, she's the one who, she's the helicopter pilot who shoots him down. Yeah, the bad She's the bad lady. She's the bad Bond lady. Before this, she was in 1967's Casino Royale. Okay. The Abominable Dr. Fibes and At the Earth's Core. After this, she did Maniac. The last horror film, Slaughter High, she became a B-movie horror queen. Okay. 
And prior to her introduction on film, she sat on a bee and was stung really badly. On her butt. Yep. So her stern look throughout the entire greeting. Is that her butt hurts really, really bad. Yeah. Well, in second grade, I went to do a handstand out in in the yard and my hand went right on a bee and I got stung. And it was also field day and it was the worst day ever. I sympathize. This has been Diana's Story Corner. You're welcome. It's a little piece of my pain for your entertainment. <laughs> All right, on to our arpons. Ooh. And it is a lot of Bond arpons this time. Random people of note. First of all, we're going to start with Walter Guttel as General Anatole Gogol. I don't know what any of those words mean. That is the KGB director that we meet in this uh, okay. movie. The big deal with this is that Gogol is going to appear in all of the remaining Roger Moore movies. Okay. So this is now a recurring character that's going to keep popping up. All right. Sweet. I'm into it. Then we have Jeffrey Keane as Sir Frederick Gray. He will also be in all of the remaining Bond films and The Living Daylights. Okay. He's now known as Sir Frederick Gray, but the rest of the time you're going to keep hearing him as Minister of Defense. Okay. So we have M and then we have the Minister. Minister. We also have the return of Bernard Lee as M, Desmond Llewellyn as Q, and Lois Maxwell as Miss Moneypenny. Fun point, this is one of the few times Q's real name gets mentioned, and it's by Anya. Oh, yes, because she's done her homework. Such a cheeky, fun moment. Oh, it's it's like the one with Daniel Craig where he goes, I thought M was a randomly assigned letter. I had no idea it stood for, if you finish that sentence, I'll kill you myself. <laughs> Loved it. It was like, ooh, I want to know more. Also, M's name gets mentioned in this movie, mm-hmm. Miles. Yeah. But I do love, I do love that they gave Anya that line. Oh yeah. So that even Q's like, well, thank you. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I love it when Q gets it because Q is just short for quartermaster. Yep. It's, it's not a call sign at all. And we know his name from the very first movie. The, we do. He's known as Major Boothroyd in all of Doctor No. I love it. Robert Brown as Admiral Hargreaves. The important note for him is that he would take over the role of M after Bernard Lee's death in 1981. Sad. And finally, Victor Turjansky. He will appear in this movie, Moonraker, and For Your Eyes Only, as a man who is so surprised at seeing the Lotus Esprit come out of the water that he looks at his bottle in amazement, thinking, have I drunk too much? He will perform this same role in the next three movies. Is it always an esprit? No. Or just whichever car comes up from the water? Whatever ridiculous, ridiculous ass thing. thing happens in the movie, he's going to look at whatever drink he has in his hand being like, I'm too drunk for this. You know? <laughs> you gotta bet you go with it. Right? <laughs> gotta go with it. All right, a quick run through of gadgets. We have, of course, Jaws Teeth, the cigarette case and lighter as a microfilm reader. I like it. The gun in the ski pole. That's pretty pointless. No, it's not. You're running from spies on skis. You need to shoot a guy. Because that's a thing that happens. Well, it has. This is the second time in Bond this has happened. Right? <laughs> the Seiko Quartz Watch with Telex that prints out messages. Oh, the label maker. <laughs> it's a label maker. It is a label maker, but on the other hand, pretty awesome that you can get a remote message on your watch. It's true. Like now we call those watches. Mm-hmm. The MI6 headquarters in Cairo ruins. Yeah, that's fun. The Lotus Esprit submarine. 
pretty cool. Which is ridiculous, but awesome. It's, it, they made it look really cool underwater. They did. I, they had fun with that one. The ICBM detonator, when they've got the nuclear missile and he's got to pull the detonator out so they can go blow oh, up the door. Yeah. That was a good, oh God moment. That was fun. The sub-tracking system, mm -hmm. the SS Lipperus, the oil tanker that opens up and swallows submarines. Yes. The monorail boat. <laughs> the wet bike, a.k.a. Wet Nelly. Also known as a jet ski. And, of course, the Atlantis Sea Base. Okay, the Sea Base is badass. It's, I love the Sea Base. Except it reminds me of the Legion of Doom just a little too much. Oh, but that's only because of the conference room with the walls that go up and down. If you didn't have that, it wouldn't feel very, very Legion of Doom because it has butt chairs. Well, no, I'm thinking like Super Friends Legion of Doom from the cartoon series. Okay, maybe a little bit, but also butt chairs. That's true. I'm really excited to talk about the butt chairs. I don't have any trivia about the butt chairs. I'm very sorry. They're chairs that look like ladies' butts and their legs. Yeah. This is the horniest Bond ever. It's really horny. Trivia. This movie premiered on July 7th, 1977. A very intentional 007 reference. I love it. Why not? The Egyptian government was on set to ensure that their country was never treated negatively. Okay. When Roger Moore makes the little crack about Egyptian builders, he did not say that out loud while filming. He mouthed, <laughs> mouthed it, it. And the censors never noticed it. The fun twist is that when Egyptian audiences saw that and heard that line, they thought it was funny. They thought it was hilarious. The cinematographer of this film is Claude Renoir, the nephew of legendary French filmmaker Jean Renoir. Claude was losing his eyesight and could not see the end of the massive tanker set. And so he could not supervise the lighting. So Ken Adam brought in a secret weapon. His good friend, Stanley Kubrick. Seriously? S Stanley Kubrick came to the set under complete secrecy. Nobody knew he was there. He never took credit on it. But he supervised the lighting on the tanker by suggesting they use floodlights. Mm-hmm. And Kubrick's stepdaughter, Katharina, designed the metal dentures for Richard Keel as Jaws. Wow. Remember how we said that a lot of this reminded us of Kubrick? We did. <laughs> we did point out, like, this has some Kubrick vibes to it. The thing I always forget is this is done in Pinewood. And so it's a lot of the same shared it's a ideas. a lot of the same sound stages, a lot of the same crew members. And Ken Adam is the guy who did a bunch of his set work. Oh, yeah. No, no. That's fine. Like, it was never bad. But the Lotus thing is very Kubrick. And the, so are the butt chairs. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Ken was just hanging out with Stanley and picking up ideas from him. The entire time. Oh, sure. I just thought. Sure. Like, not not in a skeezy or like, I'm going to pick your brain, but just like, huh. I got work? this problem. What do you think you'd do? Oh, I would do this. Oh, okay. That'll work. Yeah. Yeah. And then making it his own. With the moment that's we said that and I saw this trivia, I was like, that's awesome. Love it. The set cost $1 million for the largest soundstage in the world to create this giant Lipra stage. <laughs> not think it i know you said one million dollars and we're talking about bond i can't not it hurts. it hurts here's the plan 
We get the warhead and we hold the world ransom for one million dollars. <clears throat> okay, I'm done. The set was 336 feet by 139 feet by 44 feet. That's big. <laughs> and that was used for all of those interior shots of the super tanker. Yeah, that makes sense. The shark tank had a capacity of 1.2 million gallons. And a friend of Albert Broccoli actually offered him a real oil tanker to use for the set. Because we forget. Just a friend. Well, remember, he had access to like when when we did the airlift with the Navy stuff. And that was yes. the first time anybody used it because he just happened to have contacts in the Department of Defense. People have too much money. Especially the Broccoli family. Good grief. No more money for the Broccolis. The problem was they couldn't do that because the insurance on the actual tanker was 50,000 pounds a day. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so the model they used was 60 feet long and they used the logo in place of Shell Company livery. They built it to the actual specs of the real mm -hmm. Liparous oil tanker from Shell. That's cool. But... Ken Adam had to build it like a catamaran mm -hmm. instead of an actual oil tanker because it's got to swallow submarines. So they named it the Jonah set. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. And Ken Adam's submarine set was the very first on the brand new 007 set at Pinewood Studios. Okay, cool. The car. <laughs> the spree. The Lotus Esprit. By this point, the Bond franchise had become the most lucrative in the world for sponsorships. Oh, yes. And there was a large-scale competition for what the next car was going to be. Okay. Lotus manager Don McLaughlin realized very quickly on the best way to approach this was to get the producers interested in him instead of trying to beg to get in the movie. He wanted to stand apart. Oh, yeah. So one day, he drove up to the Pinewood set with the then-unreleased Lotus Esprit so that at lunchtime, all of the producers would see it. As soon as it gathered a crowd and people were chattering about it, he drove off without saying a word. Yep. As he expected, they were desperate to know more. He got the call. They used it for the filming. That is a badass power move. That is a power move because, yeah, once you know how popular something is, everybody wants your attention. So somebody who is... Not so much on your radar, but is clearly something people are interested in. I got to at least know what it is. Mm -hmm. We got to at least have a meeting with these people. I love it. The car actually handled too well for the stunts they were doing. In order to get the sliding around on the corners, they had to drive incredibly fast in the Lotus. Oh, okay. Because it, it, it had too much grip and was too smooth at high speed. So, like, they had to be reckless in order to get the shots they wanted. That's... Not good for the drivers, but funny at the same time. In Sardinia, it had to drive up a mountain and around a bend, and the normal driver wasn't available. So Roger Becker, who was a Lotus employee who handled the cars, okay. was asked to drive the car up the mountain to prepare. When he got to the end, he thrashed the car to the line, did a 180 on the gravel, and stopped the car where they wanted it. And the crew said, would you mind doing that again? And this time, it'll be on camera. That's so badass. From then on, any time they were shooting the Lotus, Roger Becker was the driver. Yeah, because he knows how to handle it. <laughs> and he can do shit they're not, it, they're not thinking it can do. It's so awesome. I love that. That's so badass. Damn. Way to go, Esprit. <laughs> and the four submarines were four different models so that they could get each different shot. They had the launch from the pier. Mm -hmm. They had one model to cover the wheel wells up. Yeah. 
They had one that would extend the diving planes, and then they had the fully actual underwater car that they could pull up from the but i mean the literal underwater car worked that thing was a real submersible what maybe it was a model but it still worked that's fucking nuts i know 13 and a half million dollars in 1977 goes a long way i mean it's like a lambo now that's amazing i know Lotus Esprit orders surged to the point that customers wound up on a three-year waiting list after this movie was released. Sounds like the Tesla now. And speaking of Tesla... Oh, great. Elon Musk purchased a working version of this vehicle and planned, when he bought it in 2013, to make the actual functional submarine dual-purpose vehicle. Of course he did. Because of course he did. I mean, I'm just waiting for Elon Musk to turn into Goldfinger. He is a Bond villain. He, he already he is. One. I mean, okay, when you acquire that much money, you either become Batman or a Batman villain or a Bond villain. That's just the way it is. And he's a Bond villain. Except the only way we're going to stop him is by, you know, pitchforks and torches. You know, peasants revolt. It's just a thing. It's true. The parachute jump. Oh, yeah. Now, this was actually George Lazenby's idea from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. He came up with this idea, pitched it to the producers. They loved it, but the equipment was not available at the time they made that movie. Yeah, they didn't have the camera to do it. They couldn't pull that stunt off in 1969. So the producers came back, revisited it, and added the touch of the Union Jack. Mm -hmm. And critics cite this moment as Bond transforming from a British hero to a British icon. That moment of seeing the Union Jack fly out, parachuting off the cliff. I mean, they recreated it for the London games. Right? Yeah. It's such a huge moment. It's kind of like, okay, Bond's literally transcended at this point. He's a, he's ascended. I'm okay with that, except for the fact that you can clearly tell that those are not the actors that are jumping. They did not hide their faces very well. At the world premiere, Prince Charles stood in honor of the flag. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> Dweeb. He's such a I'll dork. never forgive you for what you did to Diana. And this ski jump. Oh, man. They saw Rick Sylvester do this stunt. Mm-hmm. In similar fashion, they saw a photo shot of him do it. So they went to the same place where he shot that. The top of Asgard Peak on Baffin Island in Canada. It was only accessible by helicopter and a small crew traveled there before photography had ever started on the film and they waited for the weather conditions to be perfect. They had eight different cameras for coverage mm-hmm. and every single cameraman thought they had lost him. They, they couldn't find him off the cliff mm-hmm. except one guy. And that was the only footage they got. They got one guy who caught him the whole way through. And that's the footage they had. The entire scene was uncut, done in one take. Sylvester was paid $30,000 plus a rumored additional bonus after he landed alive. And right after the jump, one of his skis actually clipped the parachute Mm. and almost prevented him from opening it. The entire stunt may have ended in his death. That's fucked up. Fortunately, it opened up. Everyone's cool. Yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. That is nuts. (laughs) At the pyramids, a still photo of Roger Moore was used during each shot. (laughs) Nobody noticed it. Nobody sees it. But they just used a photo of him. Just (laughs) walking around. (laughs) It's flat Roger. (laughs) (laughs) Well. 
This is the last film that Elvis Presley saw before his death at a special screening six days before passing away. No, that Elvis. The pyramid light show that we see in the movie is actually still in use today. Oh, that's cool. They still do that. The train sounds on the train in Sardinia were the actual sounds from, from Russia with Love. That's cute. The crew were not great fans of the food in Egypt. They're all English. Mm-hmm. So Broccoli had a bunch of food shipped over from England. But someone forgot to turn on the freezer. They all got salmonella, didn't they? No. As soon as Broccoli found out that it had all gotten rotten, he jumped in a Jeep, ran with some crew, got food, pots, and pans, and flew pasta in from Cairo. And Broccoli, who had always cooked with his Italian family, served up a giant feast that he and Roger Moore served to the entire crew and painted Trattoria Broccoli on a sign in the mess room. That's so cute. Like, it's (laughs) stupid, but it's also precious. Like, it, it is kind of precious. As much of an ass as he seems to be, he also seems that if you're on set yeah. with a Broccoli Eon production, yeah. you're family at this point. Okay, like, I like, what I like about that story is that, okay, he could have just paid a fuck ton more money to get more food. Yeah. But instead, he's, well, he paid a lot of money to get the pasta, but it's like, well, I can fix part of this. I can, I, I'm going to get my hands dirty and do it. <laughs> And then that just sounds like Roger Moore, too. Like, I'm going to serve it, too. <laughs> I want to be a part of it. Making jokes the entire time. Uh, um, I, I like that story. Now, if this movie feels a little familiar to you, that's because a bunch of plot elements were recycled for Tomorrow Never Dies. Okay. Bond investigates an incident with a British frigate where a media mogul uses a stolen missile to plot a war between England and China. Yeah. And finally, closing credits for this movie said Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only. However, that is not the next film. No. And we will discuss why when we talk about the next film. Awards. Awards. It got three Oscar nominations. Okay. Original song. All right. Nobody Does It Better, written by Marvin Hamlish and Carol Bayer Sager, sung by Carly Simon. Barf. This song blows. This song is great. This song blows you for a are Bond film. So wrong. This blows for a Bond song. Oh, no, 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 Give no. Give me Live or Let Die. That's a banger. Well, live and Let Die is amazing. I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> Nothing beats You Only Live Twice in my mind. Or, or the, the unused Johnny Cash Thunderball. It's going to come up every time you do a song. This is the first Bond song not to be titled the same as the film, but it does include The Spy Who Loved Me in the lyrics. Whoopity doo. And it was a gigantic, massive hit. It went number two in the US and stayed on the charts for 25 weeks. The song blows. It doesn't, I guess I just don't like Carly Simon. That's weird, but okay. It also was nominated for Best Original Score by Marvin Hamlish. It is a Hamlish score. And finally, probably the most well-deserved nomination here. Ken Adam, Peter Lamont, and Hugh Scaife all nominated for Art Set Decoration. Cool. Which... It's gorgeous. Like, we could talk... We love the writing, and, we, and that's mm-hmm. what boosts this movie, but my God, the set, the design, how they built that tanker, that's the centerpiece of the whole damn movie. I mean, it's just the floating villain lair is amazing. And the fact that it's all real. Yeah. And you can tell because otherwise it would look fake. Yeah. We're definitely at the point in film where it's like, it either looks good or it doesn't. I know. And and there's there's no more faking it. I mean, there is, but 
it doesn't sit well. Yeah. Even if this movie was pure garbage, that would still be awe-inspiring to look at. True. Okay. Got through it. Mm-hmm. We liked this movie. We did. How many nuclear submarines are you no, going to give this movie? No, lady butt chairs. No, submarines. Lady butt chairs. Submarines. Lady butt chairs. How many lady butt chair submarines? <laughs> I mean, they could be dude butt chairs, but they're butt chairs nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> I need a pictograph of all of our stuff, and the lady butt chairs one is just going to be the greatest thing ever. It's hilarious and brings me joy. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, it's your movie. I That's what I'm figuring out. <sighs> Figure it out faster, dude. I'm going to go three and a half. <gasps> that was the same score I was going to give it. I don't rate it at the top level. I'm not going to give it like, I think a four or four and a half, which is where I put it with Goldfinger, because there's some hokiness and some camp that doesn't play right. There's some that works really well, yeah. but when it doesn't, it cheapens some of the other stuff from the movie. True. Still, what I love about this one is unlike the past three, we've got a truly compelling story. Yes. We've got all the horniness and the silliness of that. We like the horny. And the sets are just amazing. The final set piece of this movie is a awesome action, almost war movie. Yeah. Like it's a it battle scene. And it's cool. And like, it's coordinated it's very effective. really well. I think it's solid, and I think it's three and a half. I agree. I'm here for the horniness, and Her Majesty's Secret Service is still my favorite. I, I think know. that's the best one. I think I gave that one a four. Yeah. This is just slightly under that for me. Well, next up? We get Bond in Space. Bond in Space. I mean, I like space. I like Bond. Does he do it? In, does he have sex in space? You're, you're going to have to watch to find out, I'm afraid. <sighs> that means yes. <laughs> if it's not yes... They missed the point of the movie. You know, back in the day, this one used to be my favorite. Oh, that can't be good. Yeah. (laughs) That's horrible foreshadowing. Oh, if if we like Your taste in movies used to be horrible. If you like things when you're 10 years old, there's a good chance you're going to find it a little weird when you watch it now. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We do need to, co- we do need to cover our favorite movies at some point. Eh. We should. At some point. Like... Our most loved movies. Just a couple. But I'm afraid. I'm really afraid to do that. Oh, you're afraid I'm going to shit on them? No, I'm not afraid you're going to shit on them. I'm afraid of what I'm going to find out about them. You mean you haven't already looked them up on IMDb? No. Who are you? I didn't do that until we started this show. Our whole relationship has been like a lie. No. This feels wrong. I watch movies on their own merits. You like to find out every trivia point about them. I'm a Snoopy bitch. It's true. <laughs> All I hear is Snoopy bitch, and I just think of a do 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 do. Yeah, that still plays. <laughs> All right, until next time. Bye, everybody. <laughs>